Uh, this morning, we're going to continue to look in the book of Matthew, and if you've got a Bible, I'll ask you to take them out. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 26. You know, as many of you may know or may remember, we as a church decided to undertake a two-year Bible reading plan, an effort to try to go through start to finish, but we're going to take two years in order to do so. And so this past week, you have been going through the book of Leviticus, and in just the next couple of days, if you're on schedule, you should be finishing up. Leviticus. Boy, there's a lot of stuff that has died in that book. A lot of stuff that's died. I've noticed a lot of people's Bible reading plans also die by the time they get to the book of Leviticus because there's no plot, right? There's no story. It reads like a manual when, in fact, that's actually what it is. It's a worship manual given to instruct Israel on how they were to worship God. And if you're alone with us, just yesterday we were reading through about the various feasts that Israel would celebrate and looking at the different ways that they would worship God through those feasts, and one of them that you saw was the Passover. Kind of a brief description about it. Well, we're going to look a little bit at the Passover today. If this is your first Sunday with us, we are going through the last few chapters in the book of Matthew in a series that I'm calling The Cross, Jesus on Full Display, because just like in the days of the Romans, when someone was put at a crossroads and suspended and hung on a cross, it was meant to make you stop and ask the question, why is this person being executed? And I think that question still ought to be within our hearts today when we stop and we consider Jesus. Why was he executed? And why should we be thinking about that today? Why does it still matter? Well, in Matthew 26, we're going to unfold a little bit more about the description and understanding of who Jesus is and why he came to that cross. Um, now, I got a little chunk of scripture to go through with you today. It's gonna to take us about three minutes in reading through it. So here's what I want you to do. I've learned something about most of us. Nearly everybody here likes to hunt. For some of you, you like to hunt deer in the woods. For others, you like to hunt a deal in the mall. All right, well, I'm gonna give you all something to hunt for as we look at our passage. Let's see if I can call it up here. Here we go, Matthew 27. So here's what I want you to consider and think as you go through. I want you to hunt and think about how this passage shows us a little something about Jesus' deity, that he is God-made flesh. But as we're reading, I also want you to look and hunt for how this passage tells us about Jesus' humanity, that he was God-made flesh, fully human. And finally, the last thing I want you to do is hunt for the connection that we're going to find between Jesus and the Jewish memorial feast of the Passover. All three. Are you ready? Would you stand out of reverence to the word of God as I read through these several chapters, beginning in verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, and this is where the Jewish Passover celebration, this is when it would happen. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as is written of him. But woe to the man 
by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had given a cup, taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, and this is from Zechariah, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. And then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over and pray. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here, keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men couldn't keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this can't pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your word not only enlightens our minds, but it would enlighten and change our hearts. Let this be the path by which we know you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So again, the short, the, this story here shows us a few things about Jesus and his deity, the fact that he is God. And we see it in particular through his engagement with a couple of individuals. Specifically, we see it through Judas and we see it with Peter. He supernaturally knew some things about both of them that nobody else knew, that nobody else could know. For Judas, he revealed these things at the meal. For Peter, it was after the meal. And both men demonstrated something. They had a type of a self-confidence about them, didn't they? But they lacked the substance within their character. Judas thought he had hidden this from other people. Peter's issue was hidden even from himself until Jesus exposed them both through this supernatural means by which he could know their thoughts and their hearts and then turn around and reveal that to both of them. And then Jesus goes one step further when it comes to knowing things. And he gave three uh, prophecies regarding the future. Told him three things in particular. The first was a scripture, and that the scripture of Zechariah 13 was going to be fulfilled. 
that Jesus, when he's struck down, when he's arrested and taken away, the disciples were all going to scatter. The next thing he foretold was regarding his death, that he was going to a cross soon, and there he would lose his life. And of course, the third and final thing was that he was going to rise again from the dead. Now, if you've read the Bible through, if you are familiar with these stories, you know that every single one of these things that Jesus prophesied did, in fact, come true later, as we'll see later on in the gospel. When Jesus was arrested, the disciples run. You better believe they ran. They ran faster than small-town gossip gets around. They were gone because they were afraid for their lives. They knew the severity of what was about to happen. Did he die upon a cross? Oh, yeah. Yes, he most certainly did. And we'll see that in the next few weeks as the story unfolds regarding how that occurred. And then, of course, on the third day, he rose again from the dead by the power of God given to him. I'm going to save that point for a few weeks from now on Easter on April 9th. So you can come back and hear about that. But all of this makes us stop and go, no, wait a minute. If this guy can know the future, can know all these things, what does this say about him? What do we learn? There's only one person who can exist outside of time, who can be separated from time, who can see events before they've happened, after they've happened, looking forwards and back. Only one, and that's God himself. Only God knows the future. I find it interesting when Peter heard the first prophecy that they would all run, you see his determination. Yeah, they might, not me, not me. I'll hang in there. And Jesus knows him better than he knows himself. Brother, you're not only going to deny me, you're going to do it three times before the evening has fully passed away. And when we look at, when we consider Jesus, there are so many times and places within the New Testament that we see this about him, that he is God made flesh. He's healed the sick. He's given sight to the blind. He's raised people who were dead, not once, but twice. Jairus' daughter and Lazarus from the grave. But one of the ones that's interesting to me that ties directly into the text that we're looking at is when Jesus had an encounter with a Samaritan woman. And I don't know if you all remember the story, but after her encounter, she goes to the town. She says, y'all need to come and meet this man that I've seen because he told me everything I've ever done. He knew things about me that nobody else knew. She's getting a glimpse into the fact that Jesus is God. He is fully God. But the passage shows us that he's not only fully God, there's a component in this that shows us that he is also fully man. In fact, you see it in the prayer there in verses 38 through 44 when Jesus is in that garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane, it means oil press. It's a place where they would grow olives and you would take the olives in and press them for the oil that you could extract from them. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus was about to be pressed in a very profound way here as he was preparing to go to the cross. And as, as he's getting ready, I, in my opinion, this is one of the most encouraging prayers I've ever seen that I see from Jesus that he prays when he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In his humanity, he knew about the anguish that he was about to go through. And it was hard on him. It was extreme. Verse 37 says he was grieved. It goes on to say he was deeply distressed. And Luke records that he was sweating in this event. The text says that he sweat drops like blood upon the ground. So there was a heaviness that went on here. Now here's the struggle. 
I just told you that Jesus is God, and God, therefore, knows what happens outside of time and before things happen and when they occur. Well, if he's God, why would he pray and ask this? Did he just refute the point that there's something about the future he doesn't know? How do we explain this? Um, well, this is where we got to rely on the New Testament that helps us out. And there's a passage in particular. It comes from the book of Philippians that gives us insight onto this, where it says this about Jesus, that although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The phrase I want you to key on is he emptied himself. To me, this is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. How can the infinite become finite? He can do that when he takes aspects of his deity and he lays them aside willingly. And that's what Jesus did. And there were aspects of Jesus that he could rely on his deity, but there was others that he wasn't going to do so. He was going to rely on, his, or on the Father while he lived and existed in his humanity. And that means Jesus had to trust his Father, just like you do, just like I do. And there is a lot that Jesus surrendered. I mean, think about it. If he's God, he didn't have to walk places. He could just get up and fly, right? Or just, you know, be transmogrified, I guess is the word. <laughs> Disappear out of this spot and appear in another one. He didn't exercise that right. He walked places just like you do. Or he rode an animal just like you do. When it came to food and drink, he had to eat and be replenished and be restored just like you and I do for his sustenance. It's interesting that when the devil tempts him, what does he tempt him to do? Use your uh, the power of a deity to take care of yourself. And he said, no, that's part of what I've laid aside. It's not about using this for my ends. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And he took on human flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's such a big deal to us, right? That he came as a baby, and then he grew from a baby into about a 30-ish year old man somewhere between 30 and 33 years of age. Jesus had a belly button. You heard it here. Just like you came from born of a woman, born of the Spirit. And yet it's here in the garden. He prays and he says, God, if it's possible, is there another way? Can that happen? And he doesn't just do it one time. He does it three times. And the Father responds to that prayer and says, no. No, there isn't another way. This is the path forward for you. This is what I have designed in eternity past. And so Jesus was going to have to live by faith just like you do and just like I do. So before we go on and we look at a little bit more in the passage, I think it's good to just stop and say, why is it so important that we know that Jesus is both fully God and fully man? What's the big deal? Why, why do we spend so much time on it? It's important to know, let me give you three reasons, I think. The first one is this. First, we just need to know the truth about him. We've got to know the truth about him. Whether or not you choose to believe this, that's in another entirely different conversation. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible proclaims about him. And it's one of the most important things that we do know about him. Remember, throughout this entire Gospel of Matthew, he has just repeatedly come to say, Jesus is the coming King. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who was prophesied. Jesus is the one who's going to be the sacrifice for sins. And so, born of a virgin, God's Son, we just sang it a few minutes ago, miracle maker. 
The way maker is the miracle maker as well, and he did do those miracles. But he was also fully human. Don't dismiss that. We need to know this truth. But it's also important that we know that he's fully God and fully man in particular because we need to know that as one who is fully God, Jesus had no sin. Very important when you come to the cross. Is he dying for what he did or is he dying as an innocent one? And it's only the one who has no sin that could go to the cross and not have to atone or pay for his own sins. Folks, if Jesus had sin, when he went to the cross, all he's doing is he's writing a worthless check that he can't cash. God can't receive that. But if he has no sin, now there's a payment that is being made that God looks at and views and says, okay, this one is different. And as a result of that, God not only would accept his sacrifice for sins, but he could also raise him from the dead because he could say, this one's death was different. This one made a payment for sin's wages. And as a result, I'm going to show you with a receipt, it's paid in full when I bring him back from death. And it's only the one who could be fully God that can, that can happen through. But this is also important for us for a third reason. And that's this, we need to know that as someone, as Jesus was someone who was also fully man. And because of that, he can identify with us. He gets us. We, that was the big commercial in the Super Bowl, right? He gets us, but that is so critical that we know that he understands us. There was a garden in Genesis chapter one, two, and three in which a man, Adam, walked. And when faced with temptation, he chose sin and he fell. And as a result, all of us were tethered to him. We're tied to him. And we too are brought down in his fall. But aren't you glad there's another garden, the garden of Gethsemane, in which the second Adam would come and he, in faith, would trust his heavenly Father, and he would not give in to sin, and he would not fall. And as a result, now we have the God-man, a man who can sympathize with us in our temptations and in our sufferings. He can say, I know what it's like, brother. And you go, yes, you do. You do get us. That he is a high priest who doesn't need a sacrifice for himself, but he can identify with us. And he is the man by whom we are now tethered to, and we don't have to fall. Not because of sin. His sinlessness enables us to take on his sinlessness. And now we don't have to fall and be separated. In his excellent book, Knowing the Trinity, Ryan McGraw summarized this so well when he said this, as the God-man, Christ represented the offended God and the offending sinner. The love of God to sinners and his wrath against their sins met and shook hands at the cross. He didn't clear the guilty. He took their guilt so that through faith they might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, this passage, this text, it gives us yet another glimpse in the fact that Jesus is the God-man, and that's so important. But it also shows us something else. It shows us that Jesus is now the new Passover lamb. Now, if you never read the story in Exodus of Moses and Pharaoh and the, uh, the Exodus, if you never saw Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments or whatever that cartoon was, Prince of Egypt, then the rest of the sermon is not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. So here's what I want to do. I want to go back a little bit and explain some things about the Passover. Now, as I'm doing so, we've got some servers that are going to lead us in communion. 
because we're also going to explain something about communion. So if you guys would, go ahead and make your way over to get those. And I've asked them, if they would, to go ahead and begin distributing the elements as we continue in the story. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've made that profession of faith and you understand him to be your Savior, you're invited. We ask you to take of the wine and the bread that comes by. Hang on to it for a few minutes as we celebrate a little bit later. But if you've never done that, I'm going to ask you to do something else. Would you just let it go by? Because the meal has two purposes. It'll minister to those who are under Christ. But for those, if you haven't yet trusted, then this is meant to instruct you. It's meant to teach you. So you be honest about that, all right? And allow it to do its work in teaching and instructing. But y'all go ahead and begin serving. So um, the Passover, what is it? This is this memorial, this ceremony that the Jews conducted because of an event that had happened 1,500 years before Jesus. The Israelites had been under a very harsh slavery to Pharaoh, and this had been going on for 400 years, and they could not break free. And God had made a promise, I'm going to deliver you. And he sent his servant Moses, and he told Moses, you go to Pharaoh, and you tell Pharaoh, you let my people go. Set them free. Pharaoh wouldn't do it. So here's what God did. He said, okay, then I'm going to give you Plague after plague after plague. There's going to be 10 of them. And there's a gap of time in between each plague, giving Pharaoh a chance to relent and to thus say, okay, now I'll let my, your people go. But each time he wouldn't do it. Instead, his heart just hardened. And I find it fascinating. Each one of those plagues that happened was a direct assault against a specific deity that the Egyptians worshipped. It was this constant demonstration of God saying, these gods are worthless. It is only the God of the Hebrews that one should pay attention to. Well, time went on. Each of the plagues happens, and then it's not until the 10th plague that ultimately Pharaoh decides he will let the people go. And it was the plague in which God said, I'm going to send my angel of death on every home. And it's the firstborn in every home. I'm going to kill them. Their life will be taken up. Now, there was a way to escape this plague. There was, a, there was a way out. It required every family to go and to take a lamb, a perfect lamb. And you pull that lamb aside, and uh, you were to kill that lamb and slaughter it. And then after you slaughter that lamb, you were to take its blood, and you were to spread that blood around the doorpost of the house. And so why was that? It was an act, ultimately, that would be of faith, an act of faith that each would give. And that God's angel of death, whenever he came and he saw this blood on the doorpost, he would pass over it. Hence the name of the celebration of the feast that they had, the Passover. And so the act of obedience showed something. I trust God. He'll take care of us. We'll abide under the blood of the door and we'll trust him to take care of us. The Egyptians did not. And as a result, they lost their firstborn. Every one of them had a death in the house, and it was Pharaoh in deep sorrow who finally said, okay, I'm going to let y'all go. And the Egyptians, they wanted them out fast. The Egyptians gave them goods and said, listen, you know, God's going to kill us all if we keep these people around here. <laughs> Began giving them items of wealth, clothes, jewelry, and so forth. But they rushed them out so fast that Israel didn't necessarily have time to put leaven in the bread. And so as a result, it wasn't going to rise. It was a very flat bread. And so to memorialize this event for the Jews, every year they would celebrate the Passover meal. 
commemorating God's deliverance of his people from slavery by the act of faith demonstrated in the death of the innocent lamb. Now, folks, that is the meal that's happening within the text. As we're reading, that's what Jesus is celebrating. And this meal, you didn't have it just any time. It was established on the calendar, just like our holidays are. But it was established on the calendar, the 15th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. They were to celebrate this. I want you to note that. Note that the timing of Jesus' crucifixion is not going to be a coincidence. It is going to be extremely deliberate. Because like the lamb, Jesus was going to be slain. And rather than a door, there was going to be a cross by which the blood of the innocent one would be on display. And anybody who would come and rest under the protection that he provides against the wrath of God for sin, for our sins, they would find life. They would find that, that damnation to pass over them. That's still the case today. Freedom, not a life of slavery to sin. They too are passed over from the judgment of the wrath of God to deliverance. The whole point, Jesus is the God-man who became the consummate Passover lamb. That's what this text is showing us. And it happened at the exact time that the Jew memorialized their deliverance by God once before many years. Can you just see, this is like God's putting these huge neon lights and just pointing and saying, pay attention, pay attention. This is the one that will deliver you. You had that memorial from the past and it's at this memorial, I'm making it clear, this is the way of escape and deliverance. You can see why at the cross, Jesus is on full display. So many different things about him that we discover in and through this. Now as Christians, we don't celebrate the Passover. And there's a reason. Because it was at this particular one, Jesus closed the door on that celebration. And then he opened the door for a new one. And that new one is the one we call the Lord's Supper. The passage has just shown us how Jesus took that meal and put the focus now back on himself and what it was that he was accomplishing. And when he took the unleavened bread and he said of that bread, this is my body, there was a significance behind that. You go into the New Testament, in fact, it's the book of Corinthians, we read that leaven winds up being a symbol of sin because sin, like leaven, goes into a loaf and it permeates, it goes into every corner. And we learn about Jesus, there was no sin. So there's this twist on the whole leaven component of the meal. It's a reminder, he had no sin. When we take that bread and we hold it amongst ourselves, we're remembering his body, we're remembering it is a body that is without sin. And I can't help but think that just as the Israelites found a speedy delivery to those who are in Christ, the delivery from sin is instant. It is right in that moment powerful. So together, as we eat this, I want you to remember his sinlessness. No leaven. As you chew it, remember as it's being crushed in between your teeth, Jesus Christ was crushed for us, for our sins and for our iniquities. And we also remember that he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. And obviously, he was speaking metaphorically. He would leave us this thing to remember what it is that we have in him. So as we take this, and as we take it together, let's remember Jesus is the God-man who is the consummate 
Passover lamb. Well, the meal wasn't over with that. Because next then Jesus took out the wine and he said of it that this is what symbolizes the new covenant which is in my blood, which will be made between God and humans and people. Jesus' blood reminds us of something. He was a man. Drain the blood out of your body, the life goes with it. And as we remember his blood poured out, we remember his life was taken for us. But as a man, he could identify with us, but he is the consummate Passover lamb, which means that God the Father would provide the way for us to find deliverance. Amen? It's good. The cup of his blood poured out for the new covenant that God would make with anyone that would come and rest under him. And we remember Christ. It's just like John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.